Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, the following program is produced with a professional vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man of the lawyer chair, Don Waldman. Welcome to True Confessions. I didn't do it. <laughs> no, I did. I did. I'll just I'll say anything you want me to say. Hello. Hello. Now, it, people in this country, as you know, despite the fact of we're supposed to have this idea of presumed innocence, if you watch the trial by talk show TV shows... Yeah, but not if you confess. <laughs> Case is over with. Yeah, not only do they assume you're, your people assume you're guilty if you're, if you're even bringing in to talk to you, but now you got people confessing. Yes, and out for sandwiches, it's over. Yeah. They even got that TV show, The Closer. See, that's a great show where, uh, what's her name, Sedgwick? Uh, is that her name? TV. Uh, uh, TV. Never watch it. Never watch it. Never, <laughs> no. You ever been in a courtroom, Don? <laughs> <laughs> Professor Alan Hirsch has made a... Uh, a specialty. I guess I don't know if you can say specialty or not with professors, but you can, he's an expert on false confessions, and he confesses to knowing a lot about the topic. Hi there, Professor. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. You know, I was looking at uh, some of these cases recently, and they just absolutely astound me. But people believe that if someone confessed... They, well, that's it. Well, of course, you don't have to sell it to a jury. In fact, I would assume if somebody tries to unconfess, they're going to have a hard sell to the court and the jury, no matter what the evidence is. Is that the situation? That's incredibly true. In fact, I can give you data on that point. Really? Do. In, in cases where confessions were subsequently proven false, and I mean ironclad proven false, could not possibly have been true, but that went to trial, in 80% of those, the jury convicted. <laughs> oh, God. That's, uh, my understanding is that makes it kind of worse is that the, they will then have a retrial and sort of mix around the evidence and still convict them. What's staggering is, in, again, in cases of proven false confessions, you often have prosecutors who simply don't accept DNA evidence, for example. They make a living, they make a living convincing jurors that DNA evidence is infallible and they have to convict based on DNA evidence. But then you have DNA exonerating someone, and the prosecutor turns around and they go through amazing hoops to, <laughs> to explain why oh, the yeah. DNA doesn't prove anything. Yeah, innocent. it's called scientific unreliability. There's that, or they just <laughs> change the theory of the case. So suddenly oh. the person who committed rape, or actually wasn't even present at the scene, but must have hired the rapist, or been an accomplice, or been the getaway driver, or a lookout person, you name it. It's amazing how ingenious people get when they have to explain why a false confession wasn't false. And that's because the intuition that people wouldn't confess to something they didn't do is so strong. I mean, prosecutors aren't bad people. Some of my best friends are prosecutors. Yeah, yeah, right. They're, they're wonderful not public now. servants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I probably lost a few. But they're, they're wonderful public servants for the most part. And even they, when faced with a false confession, can't just can't acknowledge it. It's, they keep a win-loss record, and this looks bad on their record. You know, I think there's, a, there's an element of that, maybe, but I really think it's more than that. I mean, a part of it's, do you want on your conscience that you sent an innocent person to jail? So I think there's an element of rationalizing. And then there's the story of John Mark Carr. Mm -hmm. That's the one who confessed to the John Benet Ramsey 
murder. You know, the interesting thing is no one should have been shocked by that. You know when the Lindbergh baby was uh, kidnapped, more than 200 people came forward and confessed? Well, that right. was a crowded now, ladder. Yeah, this is the other syndrome of confessions. These are the nutcases that will confess to anything. And nutcases or people who are looking for notoriety. I mean, the, the voluntary false confession is, is quite a concept. I'm much more concerned with confessions that are the result of systematic... Uh, the scandal is what's legal, and what law enforcement does to break people down is what really gets my uh, blood raising. Now uh, you're hitting the heart of it. Yeah. yeah, but there are people like John Markar. There are people who confess for all kinds of reasons. Oh, absolutely. he confessed he was there, he, the whole thing. They brought him in from Thailand. He was sure. extradited in a three-minute hearing to Colorado. <laughs> and unfortunately, the DNA didn't match. You know, that was a case, though, lest we be too cynical where the prosecutor, in the phrase of the day, manned up and said, you know, we had the wrong guy. So there, there are people who really handle these things right. Unfortunately, there are too many who don't. Last week on the show, we were talking about uh, the, the subject happened to come up with a fellow who was confessing to a vast array of murders, uh, which he had committed a couple of them, but not all 300 or whatever he was, <laughs> he was confessing to. And uh, I asked, I guess, well, what was in it for him? Uh, because he already had done a couple of real ones they could pin on him. And she said, lobster. He got a lobster dinner. Now, like you could rack up points for a number of confessions. You know, uh, with twenty-five, you get egg roll. Do you know the case of Henry Lee Lucas? That sounds familiar. We this is a guy in Texas who confessed to six hundred murders, and he probably did. I think at the end of the day, it's believed he killed one or two people. That might have been who but, we were talking about. Well, oh, okay. Well, this, this this guy's not alive anymore. Um, but it was a real case, and it reached the point where when there was an unsolved murder anywhere in Texas, law enforcement would <laughs> come to him, <laughs> and he was so brilliant in his perverse way, he would have them take him to the crime scene. And that way he'd look around, he'd take things in, he'd talk to them, pick their brains about the crime, and by the time he confessed, he could give this convincing, detailed account. And so he ended up with 600 murders to his credit. <laughs> <laughs> in the Guinness Book of World Records. And I think it might be the same case, because it's true. I think he wind and dined the law enforcement. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. this is an amazing syndrome. Well, but we laugh, but, but you know, it's tragic. When, it's it really is tragic. tragic. No, and when I get people's attention by saying the jails are full of innocent people, and it's really true. But when you have a scenario where law enforcement sits down with a defendant and they tell him, well, you've been eyeballed, your friend has also told us you were there, mm -hmm. this is your only chance to avoid a really severe penalty, Yes, they're off to the races. That's at the heart of it. And that's exactly the pressure that law enforcement puts on suspects. They tell them that they know they're guilty and the only way out is to confess. And if you were put in that position and really made to con uh, believe that the only way out was to confess, you know, but for the grace of God, there go you and I. Well, particularly if you're talking about a capital case where the threat is that you're going to be executed if you don't confess. Look Absolutely. at the pressure that's put on for a deal. Yeah, no, no a deal that doesn't it. even exist, by the way. Well, we had, remember, we, on our show about two years ago, we had a fellow named Willis Wilson. Remember, and he was charged with kidnapping and uh, rape and holding a Bowie knife to someone's throat, and on the woman uh, picked him out of a lineup. He was a hundred percent innocent, and uh, he was finally he was exonerated. He was found not guilty after how many years, bro? Oh God, it was a hell of a long time. Right, uh, but uh, they kept pressuring him. 
to make a deal. Listen, we can get you 30 years. You know, uh, how, will you go for 20? But he stuck to his guns and said, no, I won't make a deal because I didn't do it. And the real tragic ending of the story, uh, Professor Hirsch, is that after the whole thing was over, he happened to be in a coffee shop and a guy came in and sat down next to him who fit the description perfectly of the killer, of, I mean, of the rapist. Uh, and he dropped enough little clues that the guy freaked out and knew he'd been made and ran away. The guy calls the police. He doesn't want to hear about it. Well, no, no, we had the right guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could play Can You Top This with these horrible stories um, and, and laugh about it, but it really is tragic. Well, the one that you, on your website, which is called truthaboutfalseconfessions.com, there is a link to a story in the New York Times that uh, was absolutely devastating, and I'm sure you know what, what story I'm talking about. There are too many. I, yeah. I linked to a number, but uh, it's the, uh, uh, the the uh, the woman who was uh, raped and murdered, and uh, they questioned this guy, and then they, uh, three years later they come to his house, want him to take a lie detector, and uh, they put him in a room for like God knows how many, twelve hours, eighteen hours, and and, and tell him uh, all these lies. We know you did it. We've got this. We got fingerprints. Yeah, but they started yeah. out with a waiver of his right to counsel. Mm-hmm. They would give him his Miranda rights times ten. Mm-hmm. Then they right. spend the ten hours. And you know, you mentioned the polygraph test. That's really used all too often for this very purpose. Even though it's not admissible in court, unless you no, and it. people are told that they flunk the polygraph. Mm. Usually, there's not either. The test isn't even. The results aren't even examined. <laughs> um, and the whole purpose is to extract the confession. It's not to get at the truth. And uh, or they're told that there's eyewitnesses, that there's DNA, and uh, you know. And people wonder, well, how could anyone believe that kind of thing? Well, you're not talking about people just waking up and over coffee being told some lie. You're talking about people in a small windowless interrogation room being broken down by people who are trained for that very purpose. And they just want to go home. They think if they confess, they're going to go home. It's very, it's, it's amazing how often one hears that. After the false confession, well, you know, why did you, why did you confess? And it's just that they told me I could go home. Yeah, well, that's what the, this is the, the article I was reading in the New York yep. Times that, that I linked to. The guy was in prison for 19 years mm-hmm. before he was cleared, and when uh, interviewed afterwards on why did you do it, he said, I was so exhausted, I was yes. so beat down, all I wanted to do was go home. Nin- you know, 19 yeah. years later, I got to go home. It's amazing, if, if you stop and think about it, and unfortunately people usually don't, but think about a time where you were desperate to get to sleep just desperate couldn't keep your eyes open you know it, and imagine in that circumstance you would say anything right, that's a great analogy it's, it's literally the case in, in some of these cases how did you get started in this field yeah um it goes back oh close to a decade i think um the thing that really triggered it for me was the central park jogger case um, where five people gave detailed videotaped confessions. And I mean detailed. One kid said, it's my first rape. I mean, it was heartrending stuff. Wow. Everyone thought, these guys are beasts. Wow. And a decade later, same thing, the real culprit gets caught. And DNA clearly establishes his guilt. He supplies details about the crime that only the culprit could have known. You had five people who were completely innocent serving more than a decade. And uh, you know, I had a passing interest in it before then, but a, a strong interest after that. And my colleague at, at Williams College, Saul Casson, 
is a, probably the leading authority in the in the nation on the subject. And I started uh, working with him. And, and once you get into this subject, it's just very absorbing. Um, and so there it is. One thing led to another, and now I devote a lot of my life to it. Well, I'll tell you, it's, there was another case that uh, I found from your site or on an article where these five people, I believe it was, were, were all charged with a, a rape and murder. One even a person saying, oh, yeah, I held the pillow over the person's face while the other person raped her. And uh, uh, of those uh, four or five people, all confessed except one who went to trial and was found guilty. Mm-hmm. And they're all serving time. And it was, uh, you know, like 20 years later, the DNA evidence clears them all. But there yeah. have been like four confessions. Isn't that amazing? There are, mul- there are quite a few cases with multiple confessions. Quite often, the first one is used to extract the second, and then those two are used to extract the third. And when people are told that someone's pointing the finger at you, saying they did it with you, saying they saw you, you know, people just begin to despair. And they think, oh, my God, they've got me. And again, then when some false hope is dangled in front of them, the implication that they'll get off easy if they confess is Which just... Which never happens, by the way. Well, often <laughs> it's, it's deceitful, yeah. And uh, it's, well, it breaks people down. It's just a fact at this point. How many of these confessions are really taped from beginning to the end of the interrogation? My impression is none. Well, increasingly it's happening because some jurisdictions now require it. But it's true that even then I'm involved in the case, I'm, I'm not at liberty to give details. But seven-hour confession, or rather interrogation, culminating in a confession, and at some point there was a brief bathroom break. <laughs> and it's this great mystery what happened during that break. But subsequent to the break, the person who had adamantly been maintaining his innocence suddenly confesses. <laughs> and, of course, you rest, can rest assured that wasn't videotaped. And you're absolutely right. There are many cases where the taping stops or it starts belatedly. I mean, that's much more common is when the person has been interrogated for X amount of time and then they've broken them down. Now you start the camera roll. Yeah, let's go on the record now. Exactly, and we don't see what. Let's bring in the shorthand reporter. But even <laughs> in, <laughs> even in cases where you have the A to Z taping, you know that's no panacea. I'm a big believer in videotaping all interrogations. But you, the Central Park Jogi case, they were taped. I mean, there are times. Sometimes it's a scripted process. And sometimes it's made to look believable, no matter how uh, hollow and shallow the whole thing is. And I, I would think the hardest one is the situation where some wacko just conf- walks in and confesses because he wants the publicity. Yeah. And yeah, what, I mean, John Mark Carr is a good example of that. Yeah, exactly. And I think most people believed him. Now, it used to be in the in the old days, and I, in fact, I heard, uh, what's his name, Savage on the radio, that uh, that fellow... Savage Nation. And back in the good old days, the cops would just take someone behind the shed and beat them until they confessed. <laughs> Those are the good old days. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. We've, we've professionalized the interrogation process. They call, it, it, they call it now rendition. It, it, is, it is in virtually all cases. I think people in Chicago and a few other places might beg to differ. 
but it is for the most part a, a nonviolent process now. Now it's the, what they call well, you refer to it, and others refer to it as the Reed technique that's used yeah. by most law enforcement. What Can is the Reed ex- technique? Yeah, explain that for us. Yeah, we've actually talked about it uh, without me having labeled it that, but it really consists of three principal steps. The first is you isolate the suspect. You know, they don't want to be interrogating people with counsel present, obviously, but with family, friends, any sort of a support system, because that's they might serve as a reality check. But you get someone alone in a small windowless room, and it's fairly easy to bring on despair and, event- and stress and eventually even desperation. And then it's a combination. I-, I mean, Reed talks about nine steps, but it really comes down to two things. One is confronting the suspect with irrefutable evidence of their guilt, an unshakable conviction that they are guilt, a certainty that they will be found guilty and punished severely if they dare to maintain their innocence. And we call that maximization or confrontation. Uh, and often it involves fabricated or exaggerated evidence being presented to them. And we've, we've talked now a little this, bit about this. This really bugs me that it's okay for them to lie to the person, the cops to lie to the person. The Supreme Court has said that lies do not necessarily render a confession involuntary or inadmissible. Ugh, how it, problematic is that? Oh, it's terrible. And the, the, the false evidence ploy or the, the lies, are they really to play a major role in triggering false confessions. And the other step, which we've also talked about, so you have the stick and then you dangle the carrot. And that's done through clever and subtle ways. It's illegal for them to say, well, I promise you, you'll get off, although that occasionally still happens, and sometimes judges find a way to justify that, too. um, But much more typical is subtle ways of implying that there will be lenient treatment if the person confesses. Oh, yeah, I had one cop tell me, he uh, told the fellow, if you'll talk to me, uh, I'll go talk to the prosecutor. That's very common. There's a promise of cooperation. But it can be more subtle than that. It can be things like, you're not a bad person. You didn't mean it. Uh, You were provoked. Alcohol was involved. I mean, there are dozens and dozens. We call this minimization because they're all ways of implying, of minimizing the crime, implying it wasn't that bad. You won't be punished that severely. And they're <laughs> ingenious. There's no end to the number of uh, minimization themes that law enforcement can come up with. Oh, you don't want to go away for the rest of your life for this? Yeah. No, yeah. you're not a monster. You're not a bad <laughs> yeah. person. There are no. really we evil people. We with you, yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, this. you didn't plan this. There's, we, we could go on cover the whole hour with minimization. I really do want to emphasize, and I, and I can, you know, I could put my hand on a Bible and then pass a polygraph saying this. I think most cops are terrific. They, they're public servants, like prosecutors. We need them. Um, the problem is how they're trained. These are legal methods. These are how they're trained. And the problem with the Reed method is not that it isn't a good method of getting confessions. The problem is it's too good. It breaks people down, innocent and guilty alike. And it's pretty hard to, to, to hang on, especially, and I, I, well, I wrote a, a book about this as a, one of the major subtexts, if you're a juvenile. Oh, yeah. Then you're really... Oh, that's a whole different ballpark. Due process kind of goes out the window with juveniles. Well, it's absolutely true that there's a disproportionate number of false confessions. I I hesitate to say it because it's part of the talking points of the Reed Technique people, is they'll say, oh, well, these techniques, maybe you get false confessions from the mentally ill, or maybe the really young. And the truth is, these techniques can break down anyone. But not surprisingly, they're particularly effective for on young people. They're more trusting and less experienced and so forth.
Yeah, they, uh, there was a whole study done on their ability of an adolescent to even comprehend some of the language. They right. interview some of the kids and they say, you have the right to remain silent. What does that mean? It means don't make noise in the courtroom. Yeah. Well, we could talk about Miranda warnings and, and why they're not nearly helpful enough for preventing this problem. Um, but you know, part of the problem is that the, the innocent people are the ones who think I can talk. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need a lawyer. I have nothing to fear. You know that we really do believe that. Um, and also, law enforcement is trained at getting people to waive their Miranda rights. They're very good at that. And you know, often you'll see it's very perfunctory. Just sort of sign here. Let me just. I got some stuff to read to you. They take out the card. They read it without affect and people sign before they know what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah, they always have verification of waiving Miranda rights. Uh, so if you want to wave the flag, never wave your rights. <laughs> That's my quote of the day. What the hell can we do about this? I mean, it is it is insane, the, the, the degree. It, yeah, because once it hits the court level, it's too late. Yeah, well, we've made <laughs> tremendous progress, I think, in, in educating the public. I'm just back from a trial in Ohio where a gentleman confessed, gave a detailed, well, actually not too detailed, but gave a confession to sexual assault. The jury was out an hour and a half and convicted him. I'm sorry, acquitted him. Oh. And it does happen. And I think more and more, in John Markar, Central Park Jogger, you get these public, very high-profile cases of false confessions, and I think people are beginning to get it. I'll tell you what, we're going to take a quick 60-second break, and we'll come back. uh, Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the West Memphis Three, if you're familiar with that one. We'll be right back. some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Waldman. I am... Hi there, I am the legendary Burl Bear, man in the lawyer chair, Don Waldman, Magic Matt Allen in the producer's room. Well, it's so much of a room, it's kind of... We have to lock him in. (laughs) It's a bathroom, actually, a converted bathroom. 
but it works. That's the most important thing. Uh, you familiar with the West Memphis Three case, Professor? Professor? Did we? Yep. Oh, is he there? I'm here. Hi. You familiar with the West Memphis Three case? Somewhat. Uh, Paradise Lost? I'm not. The, what three, is it? the three young boys. Yeah. Or, uh, awful, awful case. What is the case about? Because uh, I'm not familiar with it. You want to roll what you know, or I'll roll what I know, whatever makes you happy. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, Burl, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, you got these, it's a small town, you got these three uh, three young guys. Uh, they, they look kind of like, uh, you know, uh, goth. You know, listen to heavy metal. And uh, Bad Deed comes down. They're the immediate suspects because they're the only weird kids in town. One of them is, uh, has, shall we say, a diminished capacity IQ. No. Less than room temperature. And uh, they use these techniques on him, and he confesses. And it's just, and they, they take these, I've actually seen the videotapes of the trial of the, where they talk about they're satanic because they listen to heavy metal and uh, Michael Jackson walks backwards and that's Alistair Crowley. That was the only motive they could find for yeah. the crime. It was part of a satanic ritual. Yeah. Boy, is that an easy fallback. <laughs> and the strange thing is, is virtually every expert in every field in America has come forward and said, this is insane. And yet these guys are still in prison. Well, yeah, you left out the fact that about 14 years uh, after they were convicted, they found there's a DNA match for someone who's related to one of the victims. Mm. And uh, everything's pointing towards towards him, and yet the poor guy who's been in jail for 15 years has been just struggling to get this DNA evidence admitted so he can get a new trial. Oh, that's a hard thing to do, by the way. That's staggeringly hard. And I think, they, if I recall correctly, the Arkansas Supreme Court just heard argument on this within the last month. Um, and it, well, I don't know. There's a little bit of cause for optimism, but we'll wait and see. There's some really but by the time ones. these guys are free, they're going to be grown men, and, and their lives just slightly changed by having spent 25 <laughs> yeah, years I in I would jail. say slightly changed indeed. What are, what are the signposts that you look for involving an involuntary confession? Oh, that, that's a great question. Uh, the first thing you want to look for is, does the confession generate new evidence? Does the, uh, does the person, the suspect, the confessor, say something, point to things which no one knew, the cops didn't know? Because it's easy for them to say, oh, it's got all these details. Well, when the cops already had those details, they make their way uh, into the person's mind. But if it says something new that the cops didn't know, if it generates new evidence, then it's likely a reliable confession. Interesting. Um, you also want to look at just, is it internally plausible? I can't tell you how many cases I get where you just look at the confession and you wonder how any objective observer could believe it for a second. What it's is it about this? That'll, what, what jumps off the page? I'll, I'll give you a case I had that's heartbreaking because the guy is still sitting in prison. Oof. This, it was someone who was charged with rape, arson, murder all of a stranger, so by all accounts he'd never seen this house before, before he entered, committed sexual assault, torched the place, killed the, the victim and her father. So you've got no apparent motive? Uh, no, uh, I wouldn't, let's not even go there. Yeah, it allegedly started over a sort of random fist fight, but never mind. Um, there, there are many, many problems with this case, but here's what gets me. What ends up working against him is when he confesses, he gives these this incredible detail about the house. Now, bear in mind, this was a house he has seen for 10 minutes, in the, in the course of which there's this adrenaline rush from these multiple violent crimes. And he talks, this just 
totally jumped off the page to me, but obviously not to anybody else. He talks about the knickknacks and figurines that were on the living room table. He talks about the discolored linoleum floor in the kitchen. He describes this house with a level of detail I could not describe my own house with that I've been living for five years. Well, and he was done with an eighth grade education who had been in the house for ten minutes. Now, either he has some remarkably undetected photographic memory and so forth, or, well, you tell me. He's been supplied these details. Uh, that's where I thought you were going. Yeah. And again, most of the time, this, you know, there, obviously there are bad apples everywhere and, and, and professors as well as policemen. And as I said, I'm a fan of most cops. Often, though, more often than not, this is not happening deliberately. You know, they're not coaching people and planting this, evidence. This is one of, of, of the things I wanted to get to, is that these techniques, is it not true, can elicit a false confession even when it's not the intention of the interrogator to oh, get Oh, I think in 99% of the cases, law enforcement believes these people are guilty. I mean, that's part of the... Here's, here's a real big part of the problem with the Reed method is law enforcement is trained to believe that they can tell whether someone is guilty by body language, by their response to certain verbal cues, and so forth. So what will happen is they will interview a, a so-called suspect. The person may not even be a suspect at that point. And they will decide the person must be guilty based on what really is about as reliable as a Ouija board. Um, and then they will subject them to the Reed method, knowing they can break them down and not concerned that they'll elicit a false confession. Why? Because they're convinced the guy is guilty. So the bottom line is, yeah, this, these tactics are used on people to break them down because law enforcement believes they're getting the bad guys. They so don't the think presumption is that people. they're guilty until they prove they're innocent. No, there's unfortunately <laughs> too much of that. It's, so, it's very bizarre. I was speaking to the fellow who was head of the Homicide Task Force in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, for a book I did called Murder in the Family. And he said, all other professions have a code of ethics. Says we don't. Ethics don't enter into it. That's a, hell of a that's a good confession right there. Well, there is tremendous pressure on people to solve crimes when that's what you do for a living and that's how you're being evaluated. But I do think it is important to note that not only is the scandal what's legal, but for the most part, these the cops believe they're breaking down guilty people. Can and you so back to your question of what can be done? I think you know, changing interrogation methods, whether by force of law or simply by education, is really got to be at the top of the list. Let me give you kind of a, t a technical problem with this. Can you prove a confession was involuntary without putting the defendant on the witness stand? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, not only... The answer is it's extraordinarily hard to win a confessions case without the defendant taking the stand. And then, of course, you put him on, then if he's susceptible, he's in trouble again. Yeah, yeah, no, he's got to explain why he confessed, and it's very, very hard for people to give an explanation. And the prosecutor's going to go over every detail of that confession with him. Absolutely, and on top of that, if the guy has any kind of a criminal record, it can come in in most courts. Well, yeah, there's a jury instruction that uh, he's got a criminal record, and therefore there's a presumption he should be disbelieved. Yeah, that's it. The, the legal fiction is that the criminal record comes in solely as an issue of credibility. But, of course, jurors are likely to believe, oh, this person's committed other crimes. You know, why should I believe he's innocent? Well, this, this is always a, uh, a nagging suspicion I've had about the sex offender registry. Mm -hmm. Is that it exists primarily to have people to arrest to close cases? No. Mm. Oh. 
and I'll, I got a reason for that, and I think I mentioned on the show before a case I investigated where uh, the police supposedly had or said that they had the suspect under surveillance 24-7 between these various dates. It also came up in testimony that the body had been moved during that time by the perpetrator. So I went to the lead detective and I said, if you had this suspect under surveillance 24-7, you would have seen him move the body. And he just looked the other way and said, well, we cleared the case. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, that, that's kind of scary stuff. I, I noticed the statistics, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that of uh, the 250 people freed by the Innocence Project, mm-hmm. 25% had given confessions. Yeah, no, exactly. That's what really opened a lot of people's eyes and when they started looking into the subject more. Yeah, and what about the cases where there is no DNA evidence to exonerate them? Oh, that's it. I will have prosecutors when I when I testify who will say, "Oh, two hundred and fifty. That's yeah. How many cases are there? That's like a, a grain of sand, isn't it?" And I try to explain that so much of the criminal justice system takes place below the radar screen. When people plead guilty, for example, which is how ninety percent of cases are resolved, that involves a confession. But there's no one who has any incentive to challenge it. Yeah, to figure like out if it's a true confession. James Earl Ray, the never-ending attempt to with, withdraw the confession to the assassination of Martin mm-hmm. Luther King, trying to get a trial, never happened. Once you plead guilty, it's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, we even see, when you talk about the Memphis Three, when there's DNA evidence that seems to exonerate it's very, very difficult to get anyone to pay attention. Then on top of that, a good judge, even though you plea guilty, is going to make you run through all the facts to create that record so that if you try to change your mind later, you're going to be confronted with everything you testified to when you pleaded guilty. Yep. I've even seen, you'll love this one, uh, police give someone a blank piece of paper and say, sign the bottom, we'll fill in the rest. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Oh, yes, there yes, is, yes, there yes. There are some pretty nasty tricks that get done. They will also have people initial, cross out part of their written statement, put their initials next to it. This is supposed to prove that they read it carefully and found mistakes in it. Oh. That's an old trick. So what percentage, uh, someone once said that the up to up to 45 to 50 percent of people in our prisons are guilty. <laughs> <laughs> that was supposed to be reassuring. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> of course, they all claim they're innocent, yeah. uh, but uh, it's tragic when uh, when they really are. Well, this is the amazing thing. Is you know, just a few decades ago, you had people like Alan Dershowitz saying you know, the, the truth is virtually all defendants are guilty, and thank goodness because you wouldn't want to live in a country in which <laughs> tons of innocent people got thrown in jail. And he, of course, you know, said you have to defend every last one of these guilty people with everything you've got for all the right reasons. But even he didn't realize that, in fact, the prisons are full of innocent people. It's amazing. To go back to your question of what can be done, I just want to put in a plug because it, it is important. It, it, if you, I don't know if you've got a lot of defense lawyers in your audience. But if you have a client who recants a confession, it, experts in this field can be very helpful at trial in getting a jury to understand why an innocent person would confess. How tough a sell is it to a jury? It's incredibly tough. I mean, I already gave you the, the statistic that 80% uh, in cases of proven false confessions, and obviously these are cases where by definition there's no real evidence of guilt, uh, and, and still you had convictions in four out of five cases. 
it's extremely hard. I mean, it's, confessions are the gold standard of evidence. I'm kind of curious, does it ever reverse itself where you have a prosecutor calling you to testify that it was a valid confession? I have been contacted by the government once, and I'm actually not at liberty to go into details about the case. But the, the answer to your question is there are prosecutors who are enlightened, who have a conscience, and who would like some reassurance before proceeding in a particular case. Unfortunately, that's the exception, not the rule. Well, it's like a ray of, of, of sunlight behind all the dark what's clouds. What's tragic is, you know, you read the definition of, of what a prosecutor is supposed to do, you know, what their standard of behavior is, and it's not just to win cases. They're supposed to also make sure that the innocent go free. Absolutely. I mean, they're not a persecutor? No, but that's... Boy, are, yeah, no, that's exactly right. The Supreme Court has said that's their double role. They are supposed to be just as concerned about not punishing the innocent as... Yeah, the withholding of evidence being the classic example. But yet when they, they run for office or whatever it is they do to get this position, they always talk about their conviction rate. That's a, that's a great point, unfortunately. And I, I think ambition is one of the things that causes problems, political ambition with prosecutors. Well, sure did in San Diego recently. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but we had... Uh, Caitlin Rother on our show, a good friend of the show and a good friend of mine, wrote the book... Uh, uh, about the woman who uh, uh, supposedly poisoned uh, her husband, uh, murdered him, and used the money to get a boob job. Makes sense to me. And uh, one thing and another. And she was convicted, but it turned out that she was innocent and that the prosecution knew she was innocent. And But they thought it would give them great publicity and they could get the conviction. And the judge just authorized her to sue the prosecutor's office for, I think it was 12 or $22 million. Amen. But, that's but you know, again, those outlandish cases, those are, you'll always have that. The really the bigger problem are the structural problems, where people who are doing their jobs, honest-to-goodness people, are nevertheless part of a structure that predictably leads innocent people behind bars. You know, I was thinking last night, just on a, on a personal level, I was out walking the dog and thinking about the show today, and I was thinking about our producer, Magic Matt Allen, a wonderful fellow and a good friend. He goes out, uh, he and Lori, his, uh, his significant other to whom he is tethered, as he would say, uh, on Tuesday nights they like to go out to dive bars. And uh, I've gone out with him a couple times, and sometimes Matt will get a little lit up. <laughs> And uh, one and uh, one week we were here, and he came in, and he had a, a black eye, which I don't know what happened there. And he had walked home without any ID, and it took him <laughs> several hours. And it crossed my mind, my God, what if, what if someone had been raped or murdered, etc., and he had been in the in the area, wrong place at the wrong wrong time, wrong place, right. wrong time, uh, intoxicated, no alibi. no alibi. Gee, I was at the oyster horn. <laughs> I was at the Oyster House. And, uh, well, the real bad thing is he was sloshed enough. I mean, there are cases where these techniques actually get people to believe they committed the crime. And that's they, that's what's stunning about it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you can put somebody in such a long interrogation that they forget what is true and isn't. Absolutely. You know, we call those internalized false confessions, and it's amazing. I mean, they're the least common kind, but they they happen with surprising frequency, too. How soon after these confessions do they come to the realization that, what was I saying? What did I do? Anywhere from about five seconds to five years. 
five years? Oh, you really do get people who it, it just takes quite a while before it dawns on them what, what happened. But I, I more, can't believe it would take that kind of time. I'll tell you, what's more common is a case I had of an 88-year-old man in, in Idaho who pretty much was told after a long, grueling interrogation, look, tell us what we want to hear. They didn't put it that way, but tell us what you want. we want to hear and you'll go home. And he said, all right, and if that's the way it's going to be, <laughs> right, I, I did one time touch her inappropriately. And, you know, it's sort of, okay, do I go home? And they said, well, yeah, you'll go home, but first we have to drop the charges and let us go to the paperwork. He had no clue that that's what they meant. You know, we'll charge you, then you'll go home. At which point he hits the roof. So this is like a, a recanted confession in record time, about one second. Very often the person goes to jail, and then the next day or a few days later, or the first time they talk to a lawyer. You know, they get appointed a lawyer, and the lawyer says, well, what's the deal? And <laughs> say, well, I'm innocent. I'm sure you hear that all the time. Um, but there it is. I mean, most of the times confessions are recanted fairly quickly. I mean, don't they figure, like, okay, I'll, I'll confess to this so I can get out of here, and I, once I get my lawyer, everything will be all right? You know, they think that, or they're not thinking clearly at all, or they want to go to sleep. Um, but, yeah, it, it, there's really, uh, there's no template. This case is just in every every kind of fact pattern. Okay, we're going to take a 60-second break, and then we'll come back. I want to ask you about uh, Mr. Vandersloot. <laughs> Be right back. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Barbara Opal promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand-new dirt bike if she'd murder her employer. You know that. It's my book, Mom Said Kill. The kid didn't get the dirt bike. Well, guess what? The book is now available as a digital download from Barnes & Noble. Mom Said Kill by Burl Bear, the new digital edition. And you know what? Even in the digital edition... The kid still doesn't get the dirt bike. Mom said kill by me, Burl Bear, and I love me to pieces. Yes, of course. Burl Bear. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I am the legendary Burl Bear. The program is True Crime Uncensored. The band the lawyer chair, Don Oldman. Our guest, Professor Alan Hirsch. His website is truthaboutfalseconfessions.com. You know, there's a simple answer to this problem, which I see in certain civil cases, and that is a right of rescission of the confession after two days. Because if you could do that, think of all these confessions that would disappear. Well, think about how many cases would go unsolved. I mean, this is the sad truth, is police have really come to depend on confessions. And it prevents them from doing the, the hard investigative digging in some cases. 
So I, think, I don't think that idea would go over real well with law enforcement. Well, no, I'm sure it wouldn't go. They'd fight it like hell. Yeah. And yet, look at the positive side of it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Or require that confessions be corroborated. Oh, that's another good one. Yeah, yeah. No, there are a lot of things that can be done. And I, I listed uh, reforms on my website, which you've been kind enough to mention. Um, but again, the single most important thing would be to prevail upon law enforcement to modify their interrogation techniques, to be less hell-bent on getting confessions and more aware of what has to be done to get reliable confessions. The, uh, the Vandersloot, uh, he's a popular fellow these days. Uh, Smokes grass, I know. Yeah. <laughs> what, wait, were you with him? <laughs> no, that was one of the excuses for one of the confessions he oh, made. Oh, he was stoned in right, 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 right. I know well, before we laugh too much, you know, I don't know too much about the case, um, except that when I hear a claim of a retracted confession, I take it really seriously. Well, you, you just don't know what the real story is. No. Well, especially that's the case when you have an ongoing investigation. Yeah, especially in a case which gets this much publicity. Oh, yeah, you got to find somebody. You're under pressure. The pressure to solve a case like this is much higher than in a normal case. But think of how many, and I'm sure you have, how many false confessions and guilty pleas are taking place that are not high-profile cases whatsoever. Absolutely. I mean, going back to this this John Carr situation with John Bennett Ramsey, here's a guy that was a transgender child pornography. I mean, ridiculous. Ridiculous that they would think that this guy was credible to begin with. Uh, yeah. No argument here. <laughs> Well, just think how relieved they were to get a confession. In that exactly. Case. The thing that the case had been going on for how many years, and yeah. finally, after the case has been a cold case, all of a sudden it's blown wide open all over the press. Yeah, but, uh, that, that actually is, again, that's one of the happy endings. That's a case where the prosecutor acted responsibly when the DNA testing came in, and it's amazing how often that doesn't happen. Again, where even after DNA testing exonerates someone, the prosecutor sticks to their guns. Well, there's some, I don't know how you do it, the, the retraining or whatever. If the goal is to get to the truth, which is first ascertain the, the data free of opinion, and then apply the law or the moral or the standards or whatever to the data to arrive at some sort of conclusion or course of action. But if they start off assuming that this that the guilt is there and then bend everything to make it that way. You're not getting at the truth and you're not solving the crime. So they're not crime solvers. They're right. case clearers. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I think we need a lot of people like you guys who are, have a megaphone and just make it really clear. I mean, I do think the message is getting across that just because someone is charged with a crime does not mean he's guilty. Well, the message is getting across from my chair is DNA, DNA, and DNA proving that it's wrong. Yeah. Well, then you have a situation, Don, where, uh, I don't know if it's the same in all states, but at least in one state where only the uh, accused or convicted can request the DNA testing. And the one I was reading about yesterday, the fellow is deceased, but there is a hair evidence that hasn't been DNA tested, and they want to test it to clear his name retroactively. Oh, it's tough enough for living people to get DNA testing. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's no constitutional right to it. I think there's actually a case pending before the Supreme Court right now. But why do we even have this argument? You know, why wouldn't prosecutors, judges, why wouldn't everyone be 
thrilled to have DNA testing wherever it's available, where it could shed light on the innocence or guilt. Well, yeah, you don't want the guilty person out there doing it anymore just because you got somebody. I mean, you know. Well, that's, that, a, that's a great point. You know, that's one of the many collateral costs of false confessions is the real culprit stays at large. Yeah, so you haven't accomplished anything by sending the wrong person to jail. Hey, we got a conviction. Yeah, but meanwhile, the rapist, the killer, whatever, is out there shopping around for his next uh, victim. Yeah, but it takes the pressure off the police. Well, they're under a lot of pressure, to be sure. It's not an easy job, but that is no uh, justification for, uh, you know, locking up matches because he was on his way home from the Oyster House. You know? it's, uh, it just drives me nuts. Uh, I was telling Don during the break... That yesterday I took the, uh, we, I don't know if you've been to Los Angeles, it's a wonderful town. Uh, right now the weather's like Portland. Uh, <laughs> I took the, uh, the the red line train, and you pay a dollar fifty, you know, to get your little ticket. You meet the nicest people. Yep, and I got off the train, and you had the police were there stopping everyone to see if they had actually bought their little ticket. And if you hadn't bought the little ticket, you were, of course, a, a criminal. <laughs> and uh, you get a nice big ticket, and they can, you know, do whatever it is they do. And they stopped me and want my ticket. And I'm, you know, daydreaming away. I don't know what the hell I did with that thing. What pocket did I put it in? Did I put it in my wallet? Did I, you know, leave it on the seat in the on the train? What did I do with it? And so I keep saying, I listen, I do have it. I did pay for it. They're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they're writing me up the ticket. And the rest of the cops are gathering around. I've gone through all my pockets. I've gone through my wallet. And then, just as they're about to, you know, nail me, the ticket had been caught in the groove of the bus schedule, and it slid out right into my hand, <laughs> like a sli- like a sleight of hand trick. I went da da, and I went, oh geez, after you got through all this trouble of you know writing me up, but if I couldn't have found it, I mean, this guy's looking at me like, why bother going through all this stuff? Of yeah, I've got it, yeah, I've got it, when we both know that you snuck on the train. <laughs> I knew I didn't sneak on the train. I knew I was innocent. But I've seen worse. How much of your time is taken up with us on a regular basis? What is, what is your day like? Uh, well, I juggle a lot of things. I teach part-time, and I'm a freelance writer and write all sorts of different things. So I would tell, I don't know, maybe 40%, 30%. You travel? I mean, do you have to, like, you know, do people bring you in, like, from uh, wherever you are to someplace else? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's I, by just, definition. <laughs> yeah, that's usually the definition of travel. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm out in New England, and there are false confessions everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, I do a, do a fair amount of travel. Is there any state that has more false confessions than another? I'm not aware of that data. There are certainly states which are more conscious about trying to reduce the problem than others. Hmm. And it, it's not necessarily what you'd think. I mean, nice blue states like Massachusetts and New York, for example are pretty bad about allowing false confessions experts to testify. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, just, just that. You know, whether the admissibility of expert testimony is a controversial subject. Oh, yeah, because you're invading the province of the jury. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that is a fascinating... Don't laugh at that objection. It's a killer problem. Well, that's one of two reasons that are given for excluding confessions. <laughs> that is experts. just the, damn The other bizarre. is worse. The other reason is that this is confessions are a matter of common sense, and jurors don't need to be educated in it. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. right. The earth's flat, and uh, they know whether it's true. dinosaurs at the end of the world. But well, i got to get back to this, this thing of not having experts testify, because what was the line? It invades the province of the jury. 
But wouldn't the jury make a better decision if they knew what the hell they were doing? <laughs> well, tell it to the judge. Oh. You know, there, there are plenty of jurisdictions which do permit concessions experts and plenty that don't. It's entirely up to, the, you know, within the, tri- the discretion of the trial judge. And that is often the reason given for excluding us when we're excluded. Yeah, yeah. Once, ex- once it's excluded, it's over. That's uh, the it's end of real it. tough. It's very, very tough. Even with confessions experts, it's very tough to get a jury to disbelieve. A I would love to listen to one of the pre-trial evidence hearings where you try, where you testify, and then they argue about whether it's admissible or not. Murder. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it was even that way with, with DNA. The book, uh, Mur- I Did Murder in the Family, was pre-DNA. They did what was called allotyping. It was a forerunner of it. They had to jump through hoops to show that it was accepted scientifically. Are you going back to the old tissue typing tests? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, You could prove you didn't do it, but you couldn't prove it that you, you did. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, whether or not something is scientifically admissible varies from state to state or jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And whether or not you could have an FBI profiler testify. Uh, Justin right. Ray was the first FBI profiler ever allowed to testify uh, in a trial. Uh, and that was uh, the Kirby Anthony case. Whether or not uh, that was a, a valid, whether that sort of expertise meant anything. Yep. And now there's another one, which uh, uh, they'll never ask me because they could dig into my past and I'd be discredited. They <laughs> call it uh, forensic journalism. Which is where... Forensic journalism? Yeah. This looks new to me, too. It's kind of a non sequitur. Yeah. Well, the reason you can testify is that as a professional writer, you can tell what portions of a police report are made up. Oh, that's a hard sell to a judge. But you know what? I have been given police reports and read through, and all of a sudden... It'll pop out. The other one is when you you ask people to journal if they're a suspect. Where were you, you know, the night of the murder? Where were you on October 23rd at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Did you get the obvious answer? I don't remember. Yeah, well, no, what happens is is let's say the person uh, is, is did it, right? They'll go along with a certain degree of information until they get to exactly when the crime took place. All of a sudden, they go into incredible detail. Far more detail of where the, why they weren't there. Yeah, <laughs> that's abnormal. Well, that's it's, a signpost. Yes, yeah, a stylistic break, and uh, uh, you can spot things also in uh, when a police report is written. When the the officer all of a sudden goes off on a stylistic tangent <laughs> that doesn't you, that doesn't you know, hold up. A, I, I don't claim the journalistic expertise. But it is amazing how if you're looking with a careful eye, you can spot oddities in a confession. And I can think of one case where this guy is moving along, doing okay, answering questions, and then he's asked out of nowhere, what's the race of your victim? What was the race of the the woman? And he sort of looks up, and he says, white? (laughs) (laughs) See, that was it. I could have turned off the tape right there. (laughs) (laughs) That does tend to raise some reasonable doubt. You would think. I guess. Yeah, it's just stranger by the minute. This is uh, this is an upsetting topic. Uh, I imagine it's probably even worse in other countries than it is here. Uh, believe it or not, that's true. You know, we well, yeah, we because send, they use physical torture to get the we, same yeah, result. Yeah, we send people to other countries sometimes when we can't break them down. That's what I was alluding to. Rendition. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that was with the uh, 1936 Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Mississippi. The case of the three black men who were beaten and whipped until they confessed. <laughs> Thank you, Counselor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that wise advice. Thank you very much, Professor Alan Hirsch. The website really, is very, truth, very informative. Truthaboutfalseconfessions.com. Keep up the good work. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. A pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Well, I didn't do it, Don. I'm, well, I'm carrying ID wherever I go. I don't. <laughs> the police stop me and say, it's all right, officer. I know who I am. <laughs> Okay. Because I don't drive a car, and uh, if I'm going in a bar, I'll bring my passport. And carry Lori down to Junior's purse. <laughs> <laughs> Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Texas. Next. Oh, coming up next. Rocking and rolling, bopping and strolling, and just for fun, having a chicken race on water skis. <laughs> I suggest you try that one on it. Johnny, guitar, Watson. Hey, Mama. Who's your daddy? It's not matter who's your daddy, it's a real mother for you. Come on. Woo-wee! Wanna buy a new car? But the price ain't right. 